0: Scripture tonight is Acts 5, 1 through 11. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds, and brought only a part of it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him and carried him out and buried him. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. This is the word of the Lord.
1: How do you know who the uh, guest speaker is? He's the guy who's overdressed. (laughs) And to think I brought a blazer. We have thoroughly enjoyed being with you, and those are not just um, nice words to pass along. Um, it's nice once in a while as a pastor to uh, be able to go someplace else and not have to think about the service and actually get just kind of get lost in the worship, and it was easy to do that tonight with you all here. We have so enjoyed your hospitality and your receptivity. And probably most of all, your hunger for God, hunger for truth, it's made made our task of being here and speaking um, quite easy. And I bring you greetings, truly. Our church uh, sends me in a way that um, they love the opportunities we have as a group, whether it's together as a whole group, or just me as an individual, or together, Carl and I, uh, to get to see God's work in another little corner of the kingdom, um, different, and that's refreshing. To hear and see how God is using you all here. Our God is an incredible mystery, isn't He? Um, he puzzles us all the time. I, I didn't plan to do this, but in John chapter 11, the story of Lazarus, which is not where we're going to spend our time, but I was struck and reminded that um, Jesus puzzled us in the way He did, because He didn't move the way you and I would move if somebody were to come in here right now and tell you that, Uh, A person, whether it's a spouse or a child or a grandparent or a parent, um, were not doing well. In fact, they were on the verge of death. You probably would get up and leave, I would suspect, if it was an emergency situation. And in the story of Lazarus, he's told about Lazarus impending death. And it's really kind of comical because John has to, through the direction of the Holy Spirit, has to record for us these words, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister, and Lazarus. Why does he have to tell us that? Because we know God is love, and Jesus is God, and so we know that he loves everybody. So why do we need this one little verse right before what he then goes on to do? We're told that when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed put for two days. And if I calculate correctly, it would take him almost two days to arrive at where Lazarus was sick. That's four days. Why would he do that? That's rather puzzling, isn't it? God puzzles us many times in the way he moves in our lives. I think the story that we are going to look at, I think, is rather puzzling, at least part of it. I'm reminded that year, a few years back I was on a sabbatical and there was a, um, I had spent some time in Ephesians 3 just kind of reading and reading and reading. In fact, I did that. Nearly every morning while I was on sabbatical for the first few weeks, and I was reading Paul's words in Ephesians three, where he says that we are rooted and established in love. And I thought, man, if we could, if we could really believe that, if we could really get a hold of that truth, a lot of what we struggle with might dissipate or lessen a little bit. And so I was I was praying and praying for the first couple of weeks. Just that God somehow would get that into my gut a little bit more, that it would become more of a reality. And it didn't happen. It didn't happen until week seven, the very last week of my sabbatical. Um, through some rather painful circumstances, that truth finally flooded into my my soul. But I, I just want to say that the story that we're about to look at really is grounded in the fact that that God really loves us and that everything He does, even when He puzzles us or even when He creates suffering in our lives, whatever He may do, is rooted in the fact that He ultimately wants us to come to know that He deeply loves us and wants us to become like the one that He loves above all else, His Son, Jesus Christ. One of the great verses when I'm working with people that often comes to mind and um I guess it was important enough that Solomon said it twice in in the Proverbs. It's this, there's a way that seems like life to a man, but in the end it leads to death. You could probably turn that around and I don't think it changes anything. There's a way that seems like death to us that actually leads to life. Ethel Kennedy years ago, if I read this story right, back in the 1960s I think it was, when the Frisbee, remember that toy? Some of you are old enough, right? still use Frisbees. I guess they do. When the Frisbee was created, she had a connection with the uh, nuns in Angola, and she thought, wow, this would be a great thing to send over to Africa, to the the children over there. And so she ordered a bunch of them and had them sent over there. And sometime after they arrived in Angola, she got a note back from the nuns, and it said, thank you so much for the plastic plates. (laughs) By the way, Do you know that it makes, or after supper one night, the kids went out to play? Do you realize that it also makes a great toy? (laughs) The way God works is upside down and backwards to what we think. The way he moved in the story of Lazarus was to basically, through a lot of things, including suffering and death, open their eyes to the larger story of what God was up to. I want us to see in the story that we're about to look at, I want us to see that God really is inviting. It's a strange invitation in a way. It's a, it's a threatening, it's a fearful invitation. But it, nonetheless, it's an invitation to see the bigger story, to realize how God works, and at least in a little bit, and how He wants to move amongst us. We talked this weekend, some of you were there, many of you were there and some of you weren't, so sorry. <laughs> but we talked this weekend about denial quite a bit. and A lot of times what the prophets were trying to do oftentimes was to help God's people see that the problem of sin was much, much bigger than they anticipated And that part of the propensity of the human fallen soul is to want to deny the realities that exist inside of us. To want to deny how bad our sin is and maybe said a little more specifically how much our sin actually impacts others and God. Breaks the heart of God. One of the powerful expressions or glimpses into the heart of God is in Genesis, Genesis 6 where it says that God was grieved. That He had made man. That He was saddened by what He what he saw taking place. So denial is pretty strong, but denial has a, a counterpart. And I call all that, and for the sake of the sermon tonight, I call that the great inhibitor to spiritual community. And that's what I want us to think about a little bit from the story that was just read. Um, so if you have your Bibles and you want to follow along, or I guess anymore, you have to say, if you have your iPads and tablets and maybe the Bible, you can somehow locate Acts chapter 5. As you're turning there, one question that I have often asked when I think about this story is, why this story at this particular moment? Keep that question in mind. I really think for for the Scriptures to have the kind of power in our lives that they're meant to, to have, we have to ask questions. We have to be willing to ask questions. Why did Jesus stay put for two days when you and I probably wouldn't do that? One of the things I mentioned towards the end of the retreat that we had was that the stories of the Bible are not so much stories about about trying to help us see what we shouldn't do, but they're, they're really stories to help us see what's true about ourselves. I think we should be able to find ourselves in this story and, again, see it as an invitation by God away from something that is not life, that actually leads to death, and towards something that actually is life, that feels like death. So why this particular story at this particular moment? If you're familiar with the the surroundings of Acts chapter 5, you know it's the early church. And, you know, God is doing some really strange and, I suspect, exciting things happening. And it's summed up for us at the end of chapter 2 in those familiar words. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles, and all the believers were together and had everything in common. And on it goes. More details in the next couple of chapters. And then chapter 4 ends with a similar summary as chapter 2. We read, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. And then it's followed by a personal example. A man named Joseph from Cyprus, also known as Barnabas, sold all of his property that he owned and he brought all of it and he laid it at the apostles' feet. A generous act Indeed. But then in chapter 5, where we're introduced to another story, lengthier than that of Joseph, two people in the story married and who no doubt witnessed what Barnabas had done, heard and saw the reaction to it perhaps, and then formulated a plan to do something similar. You probably know the story. Ananias and Sapphira. And again, I just kind of want to pose that question. Why this story now, at this precise moment, in the developing history of the church? What is God up to? And why did the divine author inspire Luke to include the story at this point? I'll give my answer to that question in a moment. But first, rethink the story with me. Following the lead of Joseph Barnabas, Ananias and his wife likewise sell a piece of property and they bring the proceeds to the apostles. Just not all of it. But that's not the problem. Let's be clear about that. Peter makes that clear. The problem has nothing to do with the amount that they brought. This isn't a story about generosity. This isn't really a story about money. Peter says in verse 4, Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold. Wasn't the money... At your disposal? According to Peter, they were free to do with it as they pleased. So it's not an issue, again, of how little or how much was given. Peter goes on to ask them a question. What made you think of doing such a thing? Great question that strikes not simply at our behavior, but rather more importantly at our motivation. God is always concerned with the energy behind why it is we do what we do. He's not just primarily about our behavior. We must always be willing to follow suit and wrestle with our own hearts and the hearts of others. What's behind our behaviors that sometimes looks really good but really isn't at all? Terribly motivated. And what exactly is it that Ananias and Sapphira were doing? Before answering that question, let me ask you another one. What do you suppose Ananias was feeling about now as he was being questioned by the Apostle Peter, knowing that what he had done wasn't necessarily a good thing? I think I would be feeling the beginnings of some shame creep up in my throat. I told a story at the retreat, probably bears repeating for some of you that weren't there, how one night Carl and I were with good friends at a restaurant. And a friend, after about an hour, a friend of ours, a gal, started to tell stories of a struggle in her life. And Carla, my wife, began to engage with her in that story. And I began to hit Carla underneath the table. I wanted to go home. (laughs) And I hit her finally one time too many, about the fourth nudge on her leg. And she looked at me in front of Tim and Sue and said, Ken, why why do you keep hitting me on the leg? (laughs) At which point Sue said, what's going on? Now, what do you do at that point? I felt a little bit of maybe what Ananias felt. Shame starting to creep up. Am I about to be exposed? How do I run from that? How do I find cover? That sure seems like life. When the Bible tells me, in fact, that it actually leads to death. When God showed up in the garden, called out to Adam, where are you? What seemed like life to him was to start pointing a finger at somebody else. When in fact, what would have felt like death but had been life perhaps would have been for him to step out from behind the bush and say, Oh, good God, I failed. I failed miserably. What exactly is it that they were doing? Every human being since the fall has this incredibly strong aversion to shame particularly when it's shame over our failure. Our culture has a particularly strong resistance to shame because we've come to believe in tolerance and that everything, everyone has a right to whatever it is. Shame is considered an enemy, but is it really? Could it possibly be a friend that could lead us to life? I was telling you my story there at supper. It was at a pizza hut, and as I sat there exposed, the shame I felt was immense. I knew I was about to be exposed as a terribly self-centered and ugly person that really didn't care about my struggling sister, but instead just kind of wanted to go home and plop my fanny on the couch grab the remote and watch a game. It didn't occur to me to initially sit there naked, admit the truth, seek forgiveness, and hope for mercy. I wonder how this story, this particular story in Acts 5, might have been different had Ananias quickly repented. Instead, something startling took place, something that I think even Peter and the others there had no idea would happen. Something they were not prepared for as this church was beginning to form and, and spread with all of its excitement. Ananias fell dead at Peter's feet. Wow. Sometimes people say when they read Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, they say, man, we'd love to go back to those early days of the church. (laughs) Really? (laughs) And rightfully so, verse 5 tells us that everyone was seized with fear. Wow. Perhaps terror might be a better word. This guy lost his life for what today we would call A little lie. Obviously, lying is not a good thing, we'd all agree, but worthy of a death sentence? Pardon the pun, but today's world would have considered that a bit of overkill. It was, after all, just a little lie. Why this dead serious response by God when we as Christians would most certainly call it wrong, but we wouldn't kill anyone for it now, would we? I mentioned this past weekend when we were, when our kids were little, they're now 25 and 23. We had two rules, one specifically and one general in nature. The general was this, treat people with respect, which allowed us to cover a host of things. But the other one was this, don't lie. Don't lie. Six things make it seven. Proverbs tells us that God hates, according to Proverbs, and lying makes the list twice. Lying violates relationship unlike anything else. It destroys trust and makes it nearly impossible to live together in safety without fear or worry. God Himself is a community. We talked a lot about that this weekend that we call the Trinity. And even within this perfect community into which we have been invited to join John 17, there is this indestructible trust. Everyone is for the other. Each does his role without envy or trying to take from the other person. Lying, on the other hand, promotes individualism and gain for self. And nothing violates the spirit of the Godhead more than those things. Can you imagine the Father or the Son or the Holy Spirit lying? Can you imagine at the expense of another person trying to gain, at at the expense of another member of the Godhead trying to gain something for themselves. Y'all are a little too focused on Christ, said the Holy Spirit. Anathema. No way. That never would happen. Ananias and later his wife Sapphira were told lied not only to the people, but to God, to the Holy Spirit. That's what Peter called it. And they did it by pretending to be something other than what they were. And it was no small matter. It cost them their lives. Said differently, the form of lying that these two people conspired together to do is what we call pretense. And it's pretense that I think is the great inhibitor to the kind of community that God longs for us to be as a church. It's pretense that inhibits true spiritual community to happen between brothers and sisters like this. Denial and pretense. Pretense and denial, they go hand in hand. And pretense involves a a posturing or opposing an effort to deceive people about the truth of who we are. And it's so a natural part of who we are in our fallen nature. To want to pretend to be something other than we are. To kind of want to pose and posture in a way that people can't really see the truth about who we are. Jesus said that the spirit that you worship in deals with us in truth. It's the truth that sets us free. It's not denial, it's not pretense pretending to be something that we're not. It flies in the face of everything the church is to be about. It encourages hiding. It fosters comparison and then competition among the people of God. And it inhibits truth-telling, which is what the Spirit needs in order to do His work of making us into the image of Christ. For in Christ, the prophet Isaiah tells us, there was nothing bad, there was no violence, no deceit, only what is true and what is good. And God wants to make us into the image of Christ, and He can't do that when we pretend. I said earlier, and I want to reiterate again, I think the stories of the Bible are meant to help us see what's true about ourselves. How easy it is for us in subtle ways to pretend to posture, to pose. Because we're terrified that if we're seen for what we really are, that maybe we're not where we need to be. I've been a pastor of the same group of people for 28 years, and I'm still convinced if they really knew me, they'd throw me out. (laughs) That's a fear, even though they've proven otherwise. And I think it's my job as a pastor... It's your job as a priest, fellow priest, to help us become the community of the broken. The community of the forgiven. Not to live our lives in a way that lies to one another. I'm not suggesting that you should tell everybody everything that's going on in your life. I just think what I'm inviting us to and what I think God is inviting us to is authenticity. living consistent with what's really true as best we can, knowing knowing that our default mode is to slide so subtly sometimes back into this sense of pretense that really creates death and distance, not life. This short story, which consists of 11 verses in Acts 5, ends with these words, "...great fear sees the whole church." In all who heard about these events. Recall our earlier question to begin this story? It was this. Why this story at this particular moment in the history of the church? Here's my answer to the question. I think God is going about building His church here in Acts, and this story communicates to the people that the church will not be built on pretense. This community I, God, am creating is intended to be unlike any other on this fallen planet. It's meant to be a safe place, a place where people can tell the truth no matter how ugly it is and still find hope. You know one of the saddest stories in all of Scripture is when Judas became aware of what it is that he had done and he went back to the religious institution, to to the religious leaders, And tried to find hope. And the response to him is, What is that to us? There was no hope. And he went out and hung himself. We are people of hope. We offer that hope to each other at various points along the journey. Will we lead the way in being people who don't pose and posture, who repent from that from time to time so that God can do his deepest work in us and as a byproduct of that, we can become a safe place for those who have no hope? It starts with you. It starts with me. To help us become the community of the broken, to celebrate that. Isn't that what this is about in front of me? Tonight, that Jesus was broken on our behalf. We bring our broken lives, our messed up lives, all the stuff we do in our relationships that's about ourselves and not about the glory of God, not about relating in a way that God relates, and we bring it to Him and we say, Help, Lord. We don't hide, we don't pretend. And so the question has to be for each of us, where am I doing that? How do I do that? It can be as simple as sometimes I don't like who I am when I look in the mirror. And I so badly want to be somebody other than I am that I want to pretend that it's not true, whatever it is true about me, rather than accepting how God has made me. That might be one form, and it is for me sometimes. Of trying to be something I'm not. Pretense is alive in all of us and in our churches. And if we're going to be countercultural, if we're going to experience the miracles of God in our lives, then it will begin when people like us choose to live with each other as best we can without pretense and denial and, and confess it when it happens. And I think it starts with leadership. I was in a precepts class that I teach for middle schoolers some time back, and there was a young man named Daniel, and I asked a question. And I asked a question of another gal who was 13 years old. Her name was Sydney. I said, Sid, what do you think about this? And Daniel answered. And I looked at Daniel, and I said, is your name? I didn't feel super angry or anything like that. I just looked at him, and I said, is your name Sid? (laughs) And I just watched him shut down. And I felt great sadness. I tried to keep on teaching the class, and finally I just stopped and said, Daniel, I hate what I just did to you there. I'm sorry. I don't want to be a person who makes you feel small. Something else had happened, and I don't remember what it was now, but I went into the service, and... Sometimes I feel nudged by God to share certain things. And I was up there going, oh, no, please, Lord, don't don't make me do that. (laughs) And so I shared that story. I shared what I had done to Daniel, and I shared something else that had happened. And I think that's part of what it means to lead, to be the community of the broken. I stand before you as a weak man who does not love well, who does not relate well the way the Father and the Son relate I long to. And I don't want to pretend that I'm something other than I am because I don't want to foster an environment in a group of people that I've been called to lead that somehow encourages hiding rather than running to our only hope. We all pose and we all posture and we all live out of glittering images of who we want others to think we are. And we believe somehow that there's life in that instead of the death that it creates. Death in ourselves, death to our communities. So here's the question, what does your posing look like? What might God be asking you even tonight as you come to the table? What might he be asking you to admit, at least to him and maybe to a safe friend? What's true? What's really true that you long for him to change in you? so that you could be a better lover of God and a better lover of people. We shouldn't be surprised by our ugliness. As the people of God who sing and worship because of grace and mercy, we should lead the charge in being truthful at how self-centered and self-obsessed we can become. Even how the energy behind our niceness might be a way of posing and posturing. That we'd like to call love that really isn't. When we are willing to admit how bad the problem is in us and see, see our own pretense and denial, we have a great chance to just discover how incredible is the love and mercy of God. And when we do that together, we have a chance to become a community where God's Spirit is free to roam. Free to roam in each of our hearts. And to develop a safe place where spiritual formation, maturity, sanctification can happen and people can fall in love again with Jesus with great passion. May the Lord bless us and keep us. May the Lord make His face shine upon us and be gracious to us. May the Lord turn His face toward us and give us peace. And together we say,